morning. You know, losing your luggage can be an, an unfortunate part of air travel, and if you've been through that, you know what it's like getting off the plane, going down to the baggage carousel. You see that light come on, that buzzer sound, and all the bags start to move on the conveyor belt. There's a horde of people there, and they're all grabbing their bag, and you're still standing there waiting for yours to show up. Eventually, everyone disperses. There's a couple of bags on the belt, but they're not yours. And so now you have the unenviable job of trying to track down your bag. And as unfortunate and as frustrating as losing your bags can be, the airlines are quick to tell us that this is a rare occurrence. That only about 99.5, or well, I should say it like this, 99.5% of the time, the bags arrive to the rightful owner. Of that little small percentage where they don't, um, they end up going to a place in Alabama. Did you know that? <laughs> Actually, very true. The bags that go unclaimed, for whatever reason, they're not found floating around in space somewhere, or you know, they, they come off another airline, or however they get lost, there's a small percentage that never get claimed, and they're loaded up on a big truck and taken to Scottsboro, Alabama. And they are sold the contents within the luggage are sold at a place called the unclaimed baggage store. It's a real place. And people flock to this place because they want to see what treasures they can get at a reduced price. These bags that go unclaimed, they are taken to a facility where they are opened, they are cleaned, they are, some of it is trashed, some of it is, uh, is given away, the rest of it lines the shelves of this store in Scottsboro, Alabama. Turn to Psalm 51 in your Bible. And in Psalm 51, starting in verse 1, here's what we read. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Skip down to verse 12. Actually, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Keep skipping down. Go to verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David had been carrying around some pretty heavy luggage. And this luggage was filled with guilt and shame. Now he packed it. No doubt it was his fault. But let's give David some credit here. He did own his sin. He did recognize that he was the one who had packed these bags that he was carrying around. And with the help of the prophet Nathan, he came to the conclusion that this was all his fault. That the sin with Bathsheba, the arranging of the murder of her husband, it was all on him. And so he had to confront the weight of all of this that he was carrying around. The sin, the, the shame, the guilt, the hurt, all of these things that he had packed in this luggage that was weighing him down. That was making his back sore. That was making his shoulders hurt the things that he was dragging behind him that was carrying under his arms. 
That is what he was confronting, the stuff that was in his luggage. And that's what confession or repentance is. It's a chance for those who are carrying around suitcases full of guilt and shame and regret to drop it off and never pick it up again. And Psalm 51 is a beautiful and vivid picture of restoration. But before there can ever be restoration, there has to be a realization, which David shows us. We must come to the realization that we're carrying around things, whether self-inflicted or not, that need to be dropped off. Notice again his words. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Realization should lead to repentance. And repentance is all about seeking God's cleansing. David's heart was dirty. And he wanted God to clean it for him. Just look at the language that he uses here. It's really beautiful. David uses the word chata which comes from the root word for sin, and through the use of this word for purify, David is asking God to not only remove the sin in his life, but to remove the guilt and the smell and the stain of sin. That's what repentance is. It's seeking to be distanced from your sin and drawing closer to God. He has the ritualistic cleansings of the Old Testament in mind as he is saying this prayer. Hyssop was a popular herb that was commonly used as an applicator for cleansing lepers. Priests would use hyssop and mix it with water and sprinkle it upon the unclean during the purification process. And David also seeks to be made whiter than snow. The snow was the purest and the whitest thing that he could think of. And David says, make me that pure. Wash away all my defilement. Make me as white as snow. Sin, guilt, shame dirtiness, defilement. David uses these different terms to show the depth of his contrition and that he is truly repentant. When he states, let the bones that you have broken rejoice, he is admitting that the only way that he can be made whole again is through godly surgery. That God is going to have to piece him back together. Broken bones is a figurative way of describing the devastation that his sin has caused. It has broken him to pieces, and he was suffering mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, in all of those ways, and he asked God to put him back together, fashion a new man. David wants to, wants to distance himself from his transgressions, and so he pleads with God to erase the sin in his life and to strike it from the record. Because the goal of repentance for David was not just restoration, it was, it was renewal. Notice verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. You know this well, but sin destroys things. It fractures things. It had destroyed David. And he was beaten down, and it was time to pick himself back up again. He was in a dark place, and he longed for the relationship that he had lost. He yearned to be in God's presence. He was living outside of fellowship and that joy that is the connection that we have with God, that, that fellowship that we experience. And David wanted to reconnect. He desired oneness with God once again. And when you want that more than anything else, when that is your ultimate desire, then you truly understand repentance. My friends, some luggage is just longing to be lost just is. It's longing to be left behind. And repentance is God's invitation 
to drop your baggage and let someone else pick it up. That someone else, of course, is Jesus. You know, it's similar to the airlines selling the unclaimed bags to that, that store in Alabama, right? God invites us to ditch our luggage that is filled with hurt and shame and guilt and let someone else purchase them. That's why Jesus died, to purchase your guilt and your shame and your hurt. It's on the cross that he paid for all of those things. He paid the price for your guilt and your shame and your hurt, and now you are free to leave it with him. Drop your bags and don't pick them up again. But you may be thinking to yourself, Chris, you have no idea what is in my luggage. If you were to open up my bags, you would find things that would shock you. Things that, that are unheard of. You know, when this place in Scottsboro, Alabama gets these unclaimed bags, they open them up without knowing what they're going to find. And sometimes they find trash, sometimes they find treasure. One time they found a live rattlesnake. They found all kinds of things when they open up these bags. And if this place in Scottsboro, Alabama can, can handle the things that they find, then don't you think that God can handle whatever is in your suitcase? I mean, he already knows the contents. He already knows what's in your bag. It's not like you're fooling him. He already knew what was in David's bag. David just had to open it up and release it, right? And the same is true with us. He knows every burden that you're carrying around. Not only that, he knows the cause of all your guilt and all your shame. The unclaimed baggage store buys bags sight unseen. They never know what they're opening up or what they're getting into, but not so with God. God knows exactly what's in your bag. And he is ready for you to drop it off. You've heard me say this time and time again, that as people, we're really good trash collectors, but we're not good garbage men. We're so good at collecting the trash, what we're not good at is setting the bags by the curb and letting somebody else pick them up. But repentance is just that. It's us setting aside that baggage of sin and guilt and shame and letting somebody else pick it up. The issue is not whether God can handle what's in your bag. That issue's already been, already been handled. The issue is, are you going to let it go? Are you going to drop it off and not pick it up again? Okay. By way of an illustration, let me show you what I'm talking about. I've got a tube of toothpaste here. By the way, are, are you a squeezer or a roller with toothpaste? You know, if you're a roller, you can repent later because obviously squeezing is the best way to get all the contents out of a tube of toothpaste, right? But if I am to take this tube of toothpaste and I am to squeeze it, I'm going to squeeze all of the contents out of it, right? I'm going to squeeze everything out of it, and I won't do all that this morning, but I squeeze everything out of it until it's left as nothing that is useful, right? There's nothing left in the tube of toothpaste. All of its contents are spilled out, and you can't put them back in again, and so the empty tube of toothpaste is worthless, right? But conversely, I have a balloon here. If I pass out, James, come just prop me back up, okay? So if I'm going to fill up this balloon, I do so with my air, right? So I'm getting there, right? The difference is the balloon is not worth much when it's deflated, right? It's worth, it's shape, 
is found in what is breathed into it. Conversely, with a tube of toothpaste, it is of no intrinsic value whatsoever when it's empty, right? When it is squeezed out, what is left with that empty tube of toothpaste doesn't really do us any good. The contents are what we're used for. And yet there are so many Christians that are allowing the world to squeeze the life out of them. They're allowing the world to shape who they are and to squeeze out every bit of their contents until they're, they're not worth as much. Their value is found in what is inside of them and they're allowing the world to squeeze that out. Whereas if we allow Christ to fill us, what was once not as useful, that maybe didn't have the value, is now taking on a new shape or a new form, right? It's the difference in allowing the world to squeeze everything out of us and allowing Christ to fill us. Repentance is not just about change. It's not just about changing your shape or your form. Repentance is about transformation. And that's what we have to understand when it comes to understanding uh, repentance as far as how it applies to us in our daily walk with God, but also how it applies in the salvation process. We talk about faith and repentance and confession and baptism and living faithfully, and we rattle those steps off like we know what we're talking about. But when it comes to repentance, we often talk about change. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because at its base level, repentance is change, right? But we need to kind of talk about what change it is that we're referring to. Because all too often we think that the change is something like tweaking our old self or making some minor adjustments, maybe changing our environment or our circumstances, which might be a part of it. But when we're talking about repentance, what we're talking about is transformation. This is not about making some minor changes to your old self. This is about being something completely and totally new. It's a commitment to change, but more than that, it's a commitment to transformation. It's not about turning over a new leaf. Because you can turn over a new leaf, and that's a temporary fix. Remember what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You're not just a changed individual when you become a Christian. You're a whole new creature in Christ. You buried that old self. It's dead. It's in the ground, so to speak. You are something new. You are a new creation. And the old person you once were is not even in the picture any longer. You're not trying to improve on who you were. You're striving to live a resurrected life. And this is something that takes time. It's a process. And again, it was Paul who stated, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And transformation started that moment that you launched out in faith and said, I'm all in. I'm with you, God. I'm submitting to your will. I want to be who you would have me to be. I want to distance myself from sin, and I want to draw closer to you. I want to follow you as closely as I can. That's the moment that that transformation started, right? When you repented of your sins, when you confessed Jesus as Lord, and when you submitted to baptism, you kick-started the transformation process. And this process is marked by perpetual faith and repentance and confession. Baptism cannot be the only definable moment in your daily walk with God. There are many other definable moments as you go along, seeking to live for Him. Growth and development are continue, 
continual. And the only thing that halts them is death. Many Christians struggle with change because they're approaching it from the wrong angle. We look at change like this. We say, if I can just work harder, if I can just do better, if I can just try harder, God will be pleased with me. If I can just perform better, God will bless me. And that's often how we look at repentance, how we look at change. And you maybe, maybe you felt that way, and it's okay to admit it, because I struggle with this. This performance-based mentality that says, if I just do better, God will love me more. You know, we, we often see change as a constant exercise for better self-restraint and better self-control. That change becomes about trying harder and doing better, and we call that what? We call that willpower, right? And if you've ever tried to live this way, where you just, you know, you're trying to pull yourselves up by the bootstraps and just work harder, you know, mind over matter, fighting the flesh, if you've ever tried to live that way, I'm sure you've come to the realization that it's frustrating. And the reason why it's frustrating is because your won't power is always stronger than your willpower. And plus, we're, we're approaching it from the wrong angle. We seek self-mastery so that God will be proud of us rather than seeking for God to transform us. Timothy Keller put it this way. He said, religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Christianity says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. If we're not careful, we fall into the trap of the Pharisees, believing that it's, that it's all about following the rules, right? That if I follow the rules, I'll be pleasing to God, and he'll give me all A's on my report card. Remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a Pharisee that came to Jesus at night. He was a man that had status in society. He was a man who knew the rules for sure, because if we know anything about the Pharisees, we know that they were ardent rule followers, right? And he comes to Jesus, and he praises Jesus, and how does Jesus respond? By giving him more rules? No. He responds by telling him what he must do to be transformed. He didn't need more rules. He needed transformation. Now, don't get me wrong, and don't walk out of here saying Chris doesn't care about the rules. Not at all. I mean, commands are there for a reason, and we must follow them, right? But let's not get this twisted here. It's not about following the rules so that I can be pleasing to God. Rules serve to modify behavior, but the gospel gives new life. Transformation comes through Jesus Christ, through God, through the Holy Spirit, Rules and regulations in and of themselves don't bring about lasting change. The Pharisees show us that completely and utterly, right? The Pharisees were all about following the rules down to the minutest of detail, and yet they weren't close to God, and they weren't being transformed. Listen to what is written in Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 5. It says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God didn't save us because we were good or because we did good things. 
He saved us because of His grace, because of His mercy. Of course, we play a role in that salvation process, as Paul points out. When he makes a reference to washing of regeneration, that is most definitely a reference to baptism. But this obedience is a result of change in our lives and a change that says, I want to live in a new direction. I want to live for somebody greater than myself, for something bigger than me. I'm tired of what sin has done for me. I'm tired of, uh, of living a dead existence with no direction and no purpose. Repentance says, I'm ready to reorient my thinking. You've heard me say it before. Repentance is a radical reprioritization of life's values effective immediately. It's a radical reconstruction of the heart. It's laying down my weapons of rebellion and saying, I surrender to you, God, to your will. I surrender. In Matthew chapter 5, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Do you know the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about here? It's not the mourning over the death of a loved one. It's spiritual mourning. Jesus is referring to mourning over sin. You're so distraught about what sin has done to you, how it has affected you. You despise it. And as you look introspectively and you see, like David did, what it has done to your life, when you open up that suitcase and you see the baggage that you've been carrying around, you say, I don't want this anymore. It causes you to, to mourn, to cry, to weep because of what you have done to God, because of what you have done to your life. And you know, Paul made reference to this in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. He said, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And you'll notice that Paul was glad that the, Christ, uh, the Christians in Corinth were sorrowful. He was glad about that. And the reason he was glad about it is because it led to something better. The fact that they were sorrowful in a godly way, led to them repenting. He wasn't happy that they were sad, but he was happy with the result that the sadness produced. I want you to notice something else here. I want you to notice that Paul writes, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Godly sorrow fixes things. I can't tell you over the years how many people have come to my office who were hurting, who had done some, some things in their life that they couldn't get past. They were dealing with immense shame and guilt. Two other words we'll talk about in this series coming up. And they came in, and, and, and after speaking with them for some time, I realized they just wanted to wallow. They didn't want to move on. They wanted to wallow. And at some point, you've got you've to drop your bags, and you've got to say, you know what, I've got to fix it here. That's what David did. David came to the realization after it was brought to his attention what he had done. He said, oh, i got to fix it, right? Paul, I think, says the same thing here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You've got problems in your life. You've got sin in your life. Fix it. Do something about it. Quit wallowing and drop your bags. I can't confirm that Paul was thinking the way I'm thinking here, but I think in essence that's really what he's saying, right? Drop your luggage. Quit carrying it around. Be done with it, leave it behind, and move forward. That's what David did, right? 
Notice Psalm 51 again, verse 13 this time. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. David says, You know what? I need to repent. I need God to forgive me. I need him to put me back together again. And when he does, I'm going to go out and I'm going to teach transgressors and I'm going to have sinners converted to you. I'm going to get to work. If you're spending all your time wallowing, then you're not helping anybody. If you are so burdened and brought down by the baggage that you're carrying, and some of you have got them strapped over your shoulders, you're carrying them under your arms, you're pulling one behind you. You can't carry a cross when you're carrying all that baggage. David says, I'm going to drop it, I'm going to leave it, and I'm going to get back to doing the Lord's work. And that's what we need every one of you here to do as well. You've got to get to work. We talked about it a few weeks ago. The time has been shortened. We don't have long here. We don't have time to be wallowing. We don't have time to be carrying around extra baggage that we don't need that's only weighing us down. We've got to get to work. We've got to do something. David was ready to dump his luggage and get back to serving the Lord. Restoration and renewal meant getting back to work. And I hope that's what it means for you as well. Because it's hard to teach and convert others when you're constantly preoccupied with guilt and shame. You know that? It's really hard. Your effectiveness as an evangelist in the kingdom is compromised when you can't move past your sins. You know, back in the 1500s, Michelangelo was, I think, 26 years old at the time. And some people commissioned him to turn a very large block of marble into something beautiful and magnificent. And so he signed up for the job, and he takes this very large, massive piece of marble. And one of the first things he notices is that there is uh, a problem with the bottom of it. Looks like the integrity of it's been compromised, it's marred, it's ugly. It had stymied some of the best sculptors. Even Leonardo da Vinci said, I don't know what you do with that. Well, Michelangelo used it as a stump, like a tree stump, to support the leg of his masterpiece. His masterpiece was known as David. You've probably seen this sculptor, this sculpture, I should say. It is on display in Florence, 17 feet tall, I believe. Still stands as one of the greatest works of art ever produced. Some say the greatest. It's a masterpiece that is unrivaled. When Michelangelo was interviewed about this work of art that he had concocted, it took him four years, and here's what he had to say. He said, in every block of marble, I see a statue as plain as though it stood before me, shaped and perfect in attitude and action. I have only to hew away the rough walls that imprison the lovely apparition to reveal it to the other eyes as mine see it. Let me summarize that for you and put it in simpler terms. Michelangelo chipped away everything that didn't look like David until he came up with David. And I bring this up to say that each and every one of you, with no exception, are a masterpiece. You are a work of art. Whether you believe that or not, it's absolutely true, and I can show you through Scripture. You are a work of art, but you are not finished. You are a work in progress. You are a construction site. 
And if you've ever been to a construction site, my family and I went to Destin, Florida about a month ago, and we're driving through Destin, and it's completely torn up. The streets, I mean, it's miserable. It took us an hour to drive 10 miles. But every once in a while, they have these huge pictures to show you what Destin's going to look like in just, you know, a few years. And you look at that picture, and you go, there's no way they're getting from this to that, right? You see that sometimes at construction sites, future home of whatever, and they have this picture, and you're thinking, they're going to get to that? And maybe you feel that way. Maybe you look at your life and you say, I am so messy that there's no way God can make something beautiful out of this. Don't you sell my God short. I guarantee you he can. Because it's as if God is looking at Chris McCurley and he sees this massive block that really doesn't have any life to it or anything that, that really matters, but he sees it as a masterpiece. And even though it's messy and it's marred and it's cracked and all those kind of things, he patiently chips away at everything that doesn't look like Jesus. And that's what he's doing with you. He is patiently and diligently chipping away that, at everything that doesn't look like Christ. You've got to submit to that. You've got to allow transformation. It's not going to happen without you allowing it. But here's the thing. I want to encourage each and every one of you this morning to drop your bags, leave them at the door, and don't pick them up again. There is no reason for you to be carrying these around any longer. Repent. Fix it and get on with being a servant. Leave your bags and don't pick them up again. You don't need them. What the kingdom does need is servants who are willing to get out there and do the work of the Lord. And you can't do that when you're carrying around this baggage. Let go of what little, what things you have there of little or no value. And start living for the things that do have value, the things that are a thousand times more wonderful. Repent. Get your life in order. Allow your life to be shaped by Christ instead of allowing the world and guilt and shame to squeeze the life out of you. And if we can help you with that, then don't hesitate. Come now as we stand and as we sing.